Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Jay Spencer will join us to discuss the history of the modern airplane. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Airplanes are modern marvels whose ubiquitous presence in daily life have sometimes caused them to be taken for granted. But the history of the development of the airplane is one of countless starts and many inventors whose contributions still resonate today. Well, joined today to discuss this history of the modern airplane is Mr. Jay Spencer. Mr. Spencer has spent a lifetime studying aviation and served as the curator at the National Air and Space Museum and the Museum of Flight. He has written extensively on the aerospace industry, including the book 747, and his latest work, The Airplane, How Ideas Gave Us Wings, explores this topic for a general audience. Mr. Spencer, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Charles, thank you very much. I'm honored. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure, and I think we're very honored because this is a really a very fascinating book. I'm curious, how did you actually decide to write this history of the development of the airplane? Well, you know, I'm a storyteller as well as an historian, and I was frustrated with aviation histories. I decided that somebody had to write the antidote because even aviation buffs get overwhelmed with all the names, dates, events, wingspans, horsepowers, and I wanted to push all that to the side and do a cut-to-the-chase book that was insight just to really show how human beings like you and me collectively solved the puzzle of flight to realize this great collective wish, flying is humankind's oldest dream. So I, I did a book that it's very human, lots of lateral leaps through time and space to put you at the elbow of key innovators during their epiphanies. Just a whole new way of looking at aviation. I mean, it really is filled with a lot of very fascinating uh, stories of all these uh, innovators who gave rise to modern flight. But the, the organization of the book is actually quite interesting. Uh, rather than sort of a linear history, it sort of focuses on actually the component parts of the airplane. Yes, I did that intentionally. I really was probably the single biggest challenge was finding a structure. What I did was to unweave the tapestry of flight, which is too complex to tell, and I traced individual threads. So the book starts with the conception of the airplane, and aviation had its own Isaac Newton. So you can really look to one precise instant in time in 1799 when Sir George Cayley in England first had the idea. It was something that even Leonardo da Vinci, arguably the greatest brain of the Renaissance, didn't think about. He he came up with the helicopter and the ornithopter, but... The idea of the airplane, where you've got a fixed wing and you have a separate source of propulsion, was something that Cayley was the first to realize, and that made the challenge one that could be realized. He uh, actually did a, a three-part paper in the Journal of Natural Philosophy, which is what they called science, and he inspired others. He had one key disciple in the southwest of England who was so enthused he went off to design a real working airliner in 1843. And while they didn't actually succeed, the artwork they did of their Henson aerial steam carriage flying over all these famous centers in the British Empire told people what the airplane would be as an invention in its most important role. 
So really, it was a synergy between the thinker and the dreamer, these two individuals that showed people that the airplane would someday serve humankind just the way the horse and the boat and the, the railroad served us. So you mentioned William Henson. How much of really did he accomplish in terms of trying to build the uh, prototype? Uh, he actually did a lot, but he had a lot handed to him on a platter because Cayley was a towering genius and was truly the first aeronautical engineer, did some good science and came up with most of it. So Henson's work showed that same configuration and really had the pieces pretty much in the right place. But where he led people down the garden runway was he basically drew the airplane as a flying stagecoach, an aerial steam carriage. It had wagon wheels and it was fully enclosed and it really provided the wrong paradigm to Europe's experimenters because it told them that they would drive around the sky making flat turns. You know, uphill and downhill is intuitive, but in a carriage, if you tilt laterally more than a few degrees, it's catastrophic. You, you just go right over. So the early European experimenters really wanted to make aircraft that just really stayed flat. Of course, the Wright brothers had a whole different paradigm because they built and sold bicycles. And uh, the bicycle is very different. You know, you have to lean into the turns. Intuitively, that was correct. But also, you have to control it every single instant. You know, you're juggling the handlebars, the balance, uh, what you're doing on the pedals dynamically all the time. So the Wrights also had this whole different take on controllability that you would really be uh, actively controlling where the Europeans felt that control wasn't that important. They focused mostly on the engines. They thought it would be like holding reins, that you would do something if you wanted to turn left, turn right, start, stop, speed up, slow down, go up, go down. But other than that, it would just operate itself. So very interesting how uh, the wrong paradigm sabotaged certain pioneers and the right one helped others. Mm-hmm. So really the right's insight was focusing on how to control pitch yaw and all these things. That's right. That's right. They, they called it the problem of equilibrium. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, this sidetracked a lot of the European innovators. How did they uh, then adopt to the right's invention? It was really a symbiosis of the two because Europe, they had their first airplane flight, or they told it was an airplane, it really wasn't in October 1906, when a Brazilian named Alberto Santos Dumas made a wallowing flight and ground effect, which is that cushion of air when you're very low to the ground that helps you fly, in a machine that really wasn't controllable, or not fully controllable. And uh, they hailed that as a great triumph. The airplane had been invented. But by the modern definition, it, it really was lacking. It wasn't capable of sustained flight out of ground effect or real maneuvering. In fact, up until 1908, only the Wrights had real airplanes. Then in, in August of 1908, Wilbur, who was in France to demonstrate their invention, made a flight that was just astonishing. And a minute and a half aloft, he flew with such authority and such amazing control with tight turns almost in the craft's own length and just total authority. And the scales fell from European eyes. And so they, they really got the idea of three-axis control and coordinated Rudder and, of course, wing warping was very often what they used. Ailerons are wing warping. Today, of course, it's just ailerons or spoilers. But So the Europeans took this third axis of control and put it under their machines. And the Wrights, meantime, had a statically unstable aircraft. It, they actually sacrificed stability for controllability. And so it was really the marriage of the two where you got more stable airplanes uh, configured better, which the Europeans had, 
and the idea of controllability, which the Wrights brought. And that really gave the world good airplanes. Isn't that echoed today as well? You have maneuverability is sacrificed at the extent of... That's right. And it's really interesting. In the 1970s, the world came back to the Wrights. The idea of anhedral, where the wings angle downward. The idea of an airplane that's unstable and uncontrollable, but we use computers. This started with the F-16. We use computers to artificially build back in stability so that pilots, fighter pilots, get a really maneuverable jet fighter that they can actually fly. But if the computers weren't in the loop, they wouldn't be able to. They'd crash immediately. So you do mention, actually, the the wing design, and that's really a very fascinating story in and of itself. Uh, Yes, well, naturally, we as a species, we draw inspiration from nature, and we started with birds. And uh, so we started with very thin wings. An Australian in 1893 invented the box kite, which was aviation's first flight structure. It was strong and yet light, provided a lot of lift, because the problem with thin wings is that while you can make them not snap off, you can't make them resist twisting at the ends. And, of course, that would fly you into a tree or fatigue the wing and it would snap off. It just wasn't workable. So biplanes emerged first. And uh, basically the wing panels are braced together with struts and wires to form a rigid beam structure. Monoplanes had a lot of wires, and that helped too. But the real solution was thick wings, which is counterintuitive. Nature didn't provide an example of that. And and yet these actually uh, provide for a better structure. Yeah, much better. Mm -hmm. It turned out they actually flew better. It was a a German engineer who'd spent his whole career building other things, including hot water heaters, designing diesel engines. And uh, he was asked by a colleague at Aachen, the technical university, to help him with his airplane design. And if this other professor had asked anybody else, anybody with aviation experience, we wouldn't have had two key early breakthroughs. One was all-metal construction, but the other was thick wings. And that was because this professor wanted to apply what he'd spent his lifetime learning. He had no reverence for and little interest in paths other people had taken, and he had no interest in emulating bird wings. And this was uh, Hugo... Hugo Junkers, that's right. And so, really, uh, being an outsider, then, he was able to bring a very unique perspective to the design. That's right. And you know, it's so often the case, and that's so beneficial. It's cross-pollination, and very often, it's not the entity that is doing the current product that pioneers the new one. Hmm. They're, they're pretty much locked into the reigning paradigm, and it's somebody out of left field that really brings the next step. Uh, you know, you've looked at all the different developments of all these various parts of the airplane. Which one did you find most fascinating in terms of its history? Well, I think one of them, definitely, was where human beings taught themselves how to fly at night, on a moonless night, or uh, in bad weather. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge step for aviation. It was pretty much like thousands of years ago, where all sailboats, they were literal. I mean, L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L, you know, mm-hmm. along the shore only. But then we taught ourselves how to navigate and could really build seaworthy craft. Well, this was sort of aviation's equivalent. It was in 1929, and it was an amazing pilot named Jimmy Doolittle who had a doctorate from MIT, and he led the team that solved this challenge of blind flight. He uh, got a biplane that was a very slow, stable trainer, put it on rugged gear, built a hood over it, and then put a lantern in a dark hangar, put it in the seat, closed the hood, and had them patch everywhere that any light showed through. So no chinks at all. He didn't want any hint as to what was really happening outside 
because he had overseen the development of new instruments, radio navigational aids, and instruments that would offset the lack of a visible horizon, or the artificial horizon is one example. Of course, the sensitive altimeter had just been developed, and they got it, and it was uh, much more accurate than the World War I-era altimeter. And all of this together and procedures that he and his team worked out allowed him to take off and then fly a rectangular course and then line up with the runway again following a beam. And he had the throttle marked just how far to pull it back, and he knew what rate of descent that would give him, and he just flew it onto the ground. Mm. And this pioneered all the uh, instrument flight procedures that served the early airline industry in the DC-3 days and, of course, was essential during World War II. One of the interesting stories in the book, Development of the Flight Gear, and how this was actually propelled along by actual development of runways. Oh, yeah. That's actually a really good insight. You know, the, the wonderful romantic days of the flying boats before World War II, Pan Am conquering the Pacific and the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. But, of course, World War II, you're right. It, we had to stage logistically all around the world. So that led to the construction of airfields everywhere, and that laid down the infrastructure for the uh, airline industry, for intercontinental travel after the war. So it really obviated the flying boat, deprived it of a role. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of which, how did the passenger cabin actually come to be? Uh, oh, well, that's a fun one, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, first of all, everybody had different expectations, and they, used, they had different paradigms. Igor Sikorsky built the first multi-engine airplane. He was uh, just a brilliant Ukrainian. He was second only to Wilbur Wright, I think, as an aviation pioneer. In his early 20s, he designed the first multi-engine airplane and then went on to design the uh, Ilya Muromets, which carried 16 people at once uh, just a decade after the Wright brothers had made the first airplane flight. So this was December 1913. That airplane was really a flying rail car, and the company he worked for was the Russo-Baltic Rail Car Company. So that was their paradigm, and that really was the paradigm for domestic airlines, but it sure wasn't for Pan Am. They were nautical from start to finish in the uniforms their pilots wore, uh, their stewards who served you, you meals in fine china. They really looked to the ocean liner. You sort of go through the whole process, and actually the book ends with sort of the state of the art right now in passenger of uh, the 787 Dreamliner. Yeah, I looked at the 787, as you say, the Dreamliner, because it is the latest and greatest. It's uh, the best that we collectively as a species know how to do in this arena. And, of course, the airliner, commercial aviation is the most significant application by far of the airplane as an invention. It's, it's how it serves us. So the, the Dreamliner is... Uh, introducing many more innovations. But just in general, when you look at the jetliner today, uh, it's supremely efficient, although it needs to get more so. But here's an invention that can take off with a couple hundred people or more, the the biggest carry 500, as you know, and then it can fly some of them, the 777-200LR is the longest-range jetliner in the world. It can take off and not land again until it's essentially halfway around the world. And it does it nonstop and in less than a day. Hmm. So just imagine that. It's a degree of mobility that was utterly unthinkable through the vast majority of our existence on this planet. Amazing. So it's, I really wrote the book to make flying fun again. <laughs> and, and it's really infused with the thrill of the hunt because it is people like you and me, and I flatter me by saying this, who actually figured all this out. They did it in the horse and buggy era. Hmm. And it's just a whale of a story. And when you see how it evolved, in fact, all these parallel lines that I trace, ultimately for the reader, it 
it demystifies the jetliner. You'll see it with whole new eyes. So what does uh, the future then hold for uh, the development of the aircraft? Well, I think before addressing the aircraft, I, I think the, the biggest thing on the horizon is biofuels, and algae in particular mm. is a promising source. The manufacturers have been experimenting with it. They've actually qualified jet fuels that perform better than kerosene, the standard jet fuel, that are made from algae. And uh, algae grows in brackish water in harsh sunlight, so desert environments and salty water where nothing else will thrive are perfect for them. And they're now looking at producing commercial volumes. But when algae can't bloom, it stores this energy as lipids or fats. And uh, that really can be modified to serve as a wonderful fuel, not just jet fuel. It releases less CO2 when it's burned. But the important thing is that none of it is new. It's not net new CO2 from under the ground. Mm. So I think aviation will become more sustainable once fuels like that come in. Then for the airplanes themselves, well, it's, it's hard to predict. And Niels Bohr had that wonderful quote, prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> you know, a quantum mechanics right. joke. <laughs> but it's, it's a safe bet that down the line, the jetliners we think are the latest and greatest will look like biplanes to people. I mean, the way biplanes look to us. Mm. Right now, uh, one of the concepts being looked at is the blended wing body, or BWB. Mm. And it, it has many advantages, but it's got a few disadvantages that may limit its uh, use commercially. It may be better for military or cargo transport. Mm. The book actually focuses more on passenger airline. Um, yes. Really, a whole other book could be written about military aircraft. It should be. It should be, and I, I had to limit the scope. Okay. It's a mass market book, and I needed to keep it a readable length. So I, I really did, you're right, focus on commercial aviation as uh, the most significant role of the airplane, but by no means the only role. Any plans to write that book? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Not at the moment. <laughs> well, I think, I think you'd be eminently qualified to. <laughs> oh, you're very kind. I just have a great deal of enthusiasm, and I've been very fortunate in uh, being at the Air and Space Museum for many years and meeting everybody you could hope to meet and, you know, learning more every day. Same at the Museum of Flight. And then working for a major aerospace manufacturer for many years now, which is really giving me a, a whole new education in current technologies, flight-related technologies. Uh, well, it does look like we're running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have any uh, final words about uh, the development of the airplane. Well, that it's really hopeful because it shows what we human beings can do when we share a collective vision, when we're inspired. And when you look at how much people did. And the, the Wright Flyer really was the world's first multinational airplane program because it had uh, contributions from England, from Australia, from Germany, from France, from, I mean, many countries. So I think now with global challenges, huge ones here early in the 21st century, that it really does show that we can do a breathtaking amount when we get our act together. We certainly can. It's a, always very fascinating and really a very fascinating book. Again, it is The Airplane, How Ideas Gave Us Wings. Uh, Mr. Spencer, thank you very much for joining us today on the uh, Grok Science Show. Charles, my great pleasure. Thank you so much. And you were just listening to Mr. Jay Spencer discussing the history of the modern aircraft. This is the Grok's Science Show you're listening to. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week. So stay tuned. Look at what's happened to me. Suddenly I'm a bomb. 
All right, here we go. We're ready to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic soaring or crawling. And so for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they are soaring or crawling and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Spencer, you ready to play the game? Uh, I'm, I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Uh, person number one, soaring or crawling, Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> soaring. I have not seen her show, but I know that she is an amazing person who loves to play with ideas. So I, I definitely would list her as a soaring spirit. Uh, number two is mogul uh, Donald Trump. Oh, well, I don't want to sound uncharitable, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think I'd have to go crawling. Okay. Probably pub crawling. <laughs> uh, number three is uh, Richard Branson. Uh, soaring. Richard Branson is fascinating. Uh, it's just one of those unstoppable people who can do anything. Of course, he's, he's the uh, powerhouse behind the Virgin Atlantic and other airlines that he owns and operates. But he came in thinking that four-engine jets were the way to go. But statistically, twins are actually safer, which is fascinating. Mm. And uh, he really came around. And initially, I don't think he had any vision for alternate fuels, and now he's championing them. So he... He really is a doer, and he's taking us in the right direction. He certainly is a very fascinating character. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very engaging. Uh, number four is uh, talk show host Jay Leno. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm old enough to remember Johnny Carson, so <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I think I'm going to probably say crawling. <laughs> I, I think Jay Leno probably is good at delivering lines, but I don't know how good he is at actually coming up with them. I mean, just impromptu comments. That may be totally unfair, so I think I'll defer. Okay, okay, fair enough. Perhaps uh, number five, then. Uh, it will be the uh, outgoing president, George Bush. <laughs> Crawling. <laughs> I don't know if I'd have any other comment, but I'm a progressive at heart, and I'm a fact- and data-driven person, and it's nothing short of thrilling for me that we can finally get on with addressing so many issues on such a spectrum, uh, you know, just a spectrum of fronts. For example, global climate change, and I'm just all set for some tremendous innovation application of new technologies, and the technologies are essentially there. You know, when Jimmy Carter tried to do sin fuels, it may have been premature, but today the alternatives exist, and, and I really think that if you take a larger look, it's, it's really a changing paradigm. We're seeing the Earth as a closed system with limited resources. We're looking at it as engineers, how to make things sustainable. So, I don't know, just a very exciting time. It, it is indeed, and uh, certainly bodes well for the future, I think. Yeah, it really does. All right, well, the, the new book again is The Airplane, How Ideas Gave Us Wings. Mr. Spencer, thank you very much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. Oh, no, it's my, my great pleasure. I Now that I've discovered your show, I'm going to be your most avid fan. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank we're, you, Charles. Keep up the wonderful work. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.